Well, you know, Bob Dylan's music certainly has uh, inspired a lot of uh, people's spiritual journey, asking about what life's really about, what real meaning and purpose is in life. And I'd like you to hear the story today of uh, a new friend I've met um, who has been on a journey spiritually as a scientist that was actually inspired by Bob Dylan. So can we give a warm horizon welcome to Keith Crutcher? Come on up, Keith. Thanks for joining us this morning. Welcome. Thank you. Am I on here? Yeah. Okay. So uh, you're a bit of an uh, anomaly. You're a scientist who has become a person of faith. But tell us a little about your journey of uh, just a spiritual pilgrimage. Sure. So, yeah, I grew up in a fairly fundamentalist kind of environment. So I, I would say I, uh, I sometimes say I was inoculated against religion uh, <laughs> early, 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 early yeah. age. Um, and I, I had the opportunity to... Uh, sort of see what I would say some of the, the, the bad side of uh, religion in terms of what I perceived as hypocrisy and so forth. Um, but I have to say that during that time, there was one individual who always stood out as being an exception, and that was my grandmother. And she was very uh, loving to me, not just as my grandmother, but I could tell that she interacted with everyone in her life the same way she interacted with me. Hmm. So there was this sense of her actually really loving the people around her. So that always was in the back of my mind. Hmm. So fast forward, I, I uh, went to uh, actually a, a small um, college uh, with a, in a religious environment. So, and I, that sort of hardened my heart even a little bit more against this uh, religious stuff. Uh, when I went on to do my graduate work, uh, I ended up doing my PhD in, in anatomy and be, became really a neuroscientist. Uh, it was the beginning of my, my journey to become a neuroscientist. And during that time, I became pretty convinced that although I didn't think that, that atheism was an intellectually defensible position, um, because you can't refute all possible explanations for what's going on, I thought that if there was a God, I could just kind of declare myself as being not really involved with whatever was going mm -hmm. on, that maybe he created and so forth, but he's out there doing his own thing, and I don't have to really worry about what I do. And I was really taking pride in my own scientific understanding of the world and the universe, and so I thought, oh, well... Science is definitely the way to go. Um, so I was pretty much steeped in myself and my success at the time. Uh, and I was doing a postdoctoral fellowship at Duke University at the time. And we were living in North Carolina. And my grandmother came for a visit. And she had always been sort of in and out of my life since that early period when I, I knew her primarily as my grandmother. And this time she came for a visit. And when she would visit, she would always do this little spiritual checkup on me. She would say, well, now, how are you doing? Are you, are you trusting in God? Are you trusting in Jesus? And, and, I, and I always wanted to be really honest with her. And I said, well, Grandma, I have to be honest with you. I, I'm kind of at a point where I, I, it's not that I don't believe in God, but I just don't think it's really relevant to my life. Yeah. And I said, I, I kind of, you know, maybe God's fighting this out with demonic forces or whatever, but I want to be like Switzerland. I want to be kind of like neutral. <laughs> And whoever wins, you know, maybe I'll join up at that point. But yeah. And she, she didn't bat an eye. She just said, oh, well, that's interesting. She said, but I don't think, I don't think it's possible. I don't think there is neutral territory. I said, ah, that's interesting. Um, so then I said, I pushed her a little bit. I said, okay, Grandma, how would I know, how would I know what you're saying is true? Yeah. And she said, oh, that's easy. You just pray and ask God to make it clear to you. <laughs> I said, Okay. Um, and, but it really took me back because I was thinking, here I am priding myself on my scientific worldview, and, um, and I realized that I hadn't really seriously considered the possibility 
that God cared actually not just about creating the universe, but actually cared about me enough that he would actually respond to a prayer. So I took her up on it. I said, okay, I'll do that. And this was on a Saturday morning when we had this conversation. And after we had talked, I, I went and I was in my room and I just said, okay, God, I'm praying. Um, Grandma says I should pray. She, she seems to know you. And so... And, but, I, but I was honest about it. I mean, I, I said, okay, I, I'm just, it's kind of like, I don't know. I, you know, if, if you could somehow make it clear to me that what she's telling me, there's no neutral ground, is actually true, I would, I would really like to hear that. And then I forgot about it. I figured, okay, well, I did my duty to my grandmother. Yeah, check, I, yeah. I, I could tell her, all right, I prayed about it. That Saturday evening, I, I was staying up and doing my normal routine, which was to watch Saturday Night Live. And I had heard that Bob Dylan was going to be the guest artist. Um, I hadn't heard anything from or about Bob Dylan really for about two years. I'd always enjoyed his early music. And I turned on the show, and Eric Idle was the announcement. He said, yeah, we're going to have Bob Dylan as a guest. I'm really excited about this. And Anyway, about ten minutes in, he comes out, and Bob Dylan sings this song, which I think you've got the clip on. Yeah, we found a clip. Let's watch. Ladies and gentlemen, Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan to tell me the same thing. Yeah, absolutely. So I had to just step back and say, okay, it wasn't maybe just a coincidence. Maybe it actually was an answer to prayer. And it was really that, that point, and it wasn't that all of a sudden everything became clear. It was that I realized there was something to this story. And as I started my journey, restarted my journey in a sense, I started looking at it with fresh eyes. And I think that was the key here. It wasn't that God had somehow 
moved behind the scenes to get Bob Dylan up there singing so that he could answer my prayer. He was opening my eyes to what he was already doing in my life. And he had, he had spoken to me through my grandmother and he had spoken to me through Bob Dylan. So since then, it's just been a journey of continued growth, trying to understand what it all means. And I've come to the, to, actually I came fairly early on to the view that actually this story, not only was there no neutral territory, but actually God had provided one means by which we could know him, and that was through the sacrifice of Christ. So, yeah, it's been an exciting journey ever since then. And I'm glad to, to yeah, be here. No, I appreciate that. that. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's neat how God used that story. And uh, again, I know several of you, I've talked to recently about your journey, and you're wrestling with some of the scientific questions. And if you wonder more about how did you get from there to where you are today, uh, Keith will be available after service. We'll love to chat with you. But uh, we thought it might be fun to have our band do a little uh, uh, serve somebody this morning in a way that doesn't have marbles in his mouth so we can actually understand the words. Yeah. Unlike, uh, so can we thank uh, Keith for being here this morning? Keith, we appreciate it. Well, I think those words speak of a deep truth that we all realize. We all are serving something. And, you know, we serve anything that we're ultimately dependent on. And often it's good things in our life that we turn into ultimate things, and we end up serving that thing because we're dependent on it. So if what Bob Dylan said is true, then how do you know what you're serving? For me, I can almost always trace what I'm really serving by the level of anxiety that comes up if I think about it gone. And I bet you your category is different from my category. If you took away my house, I'd be disappointed. But you know, I can get another house. I don't serve my house. If you took away my jet ski, I'm getting a little more nervous. (laughs) But ultimately, not a lot of fear, not a lot of anxiety coming out of me. You take away my clothes, I'll get more clothes. But then we get a little closer to maybe the things that if you took away, my anxiety level goes up. You take away a child. Oh, all of a sudden my fear, my anger, take away my ability to speak. All of a sudden my career, my future, what I love, my passion. And I wonder, do I use my speaking ability or do I serve my speaking ability? What if you took away my sex life? Suddenly I'm very nervous, actually. I'm very bothered by that. What about my ability to be a good father, a good provider? What are the things that if it was taken away from you, you wouldn't just be disappointed, you'd be devastated? The level of fear, anxiety, anger, and frustration would just flood every aspect of your life. It's a good way to find what it is that you're serving, because if you're serving something, not just something you like, something that you enjoy, something that's in your life, but you really serve it, The idea of it being taken away, all the temperature gauges go up in your life, even to think about that possibility. I read an article by a woman in the New York Times, and she was describing her life um, as a writer for the New York Times. And she said that she's in her 20s, her career was doing well, she had uh, really made it in one sense at, at such a young age to be doing what she'd always loved and hoped. And she wrote down that she said, She'd had a decade-long, full-blown disorder every weekend. Her mood would darken by Saturday afternoon, and she found herself being, every week, unresponsive and morose. 
She said her normal routine was to have brunch with friends and they would swap stories of misadventure of trying to find romance or trying to find professional success. And yet this sort of week after week after week, driving for her career, driving for these things, began to just wear her out. To the point at which she began to long for Sabbath, which she was shocked by because growing up Jewish and having a bad experience in her teenage years, she never thought she would go back to synagogue. She found herself returning to synagogue because in the striving of life, she said it seemed like everything had turned into work. These are her words. She said, in the Darwinian world of New York 20-somethings, everything, socializing, reading, even exercising, felt like work. I was serving and striving always. She makes this quote, which I love, to describe the, the experience that she had. She says it this way. There's ample evidence that our relationship to work is totally out of whack. Economists and psychologists and sociologists have charted our ballooning work hours. The increase in time devoted to competitive shopping. The commercialization of leisure that turns fun into work requires military-scale budgeting and logistics and emotionally draining interactions with service personnel. Ours is a society that pegs status to overachievement. We can't help admiring workaholics. To which she goes on to say, I realized I was serving my career rather than my career serving me. The striving and the pursuing was wearing me out. And she said, what I thought is, and I think what most people think, is you can just stop working whenever you want. But she said, I began to reflect on the discipline of Sabbath, of rest, of creating these kind of habits in your life. And she said, most people think to stop working, you just stop working. But it's much more complicated than that. You can't downshift that casually. Sabbath did not exist to torture the faithful. They were meant to command the insight that interrupting the ceaseless round of striving requires a habit and a surprising, strenuous act of will. Let me give the example this way. Think of life as a fan. It's just got a lot of wind, a lot of turbulence, a lot of, a lot of pressures pushing here and there. Think of your life as a kite. And the thing is, if you aren't tied down or anchored to something, then all the different winds, all the different pressures of life, you know, they'll just blow you in all kinds of different directions. And you won't have any stability to you. And the thing about getting a focus on a fan is that God put certain principles in place. So instead of constantly being sort of blown all over the place and having this instability in your life, God created some mechanisms at which you can anchor yourself to something that isn't about always striving, that brings rest into your life. In order to do that, in creating a fan, you can actually focus the wind by putting sort of these rudders or these anchors in place. And there are several, what the Bible calls church disciplines, that God put in place not to torture us, as she said in the article, but to help focus us. You know, one of those is Sabbath. Sabbath is the idea of having a habitual pattern of rest of saying, I don't have to build today. I don't have to brainstorm today. I don't have to be something today. I can reflect and stop. Another is a discipline of simplicity. Of saying, yeah, I, I like to upgrade, I like the nicest things, but it's okay also to not have stuff, to simplify, to get rid of, to not have so much to worry about, always have to accumulate. The other is a discipline of giving. Instead of always you know, building up and upgrading for myself to begin to focus the channels and headwinds of life in such a way to bring a kind of focus that allows me to take the different pressures of life. And now there's a little more pressure. There's a little more, more wind. But it's not just the rudders in life. God also says we need something to anchor ourselves to. 
And if you anchor yourself to accumulation, if you anchor yourself to, to, to the amount of money you make, the amount of people like you, that still creates an incredible instability. But God says, if you anchor yourself to me, to finding me as your anchor point, then you can actually use the focal point of those winds in life and those pressures in life. You can enjoy your career without being dependent on your career. You can enjoy your kids, but you're not anchored to your kids' obedience or your kids' behavior. You're anchored to me. And this allows you to fly through life in a way that there's still going to be ups and downs and things that go well or don't go well, but you're going to actually have both a rudder to focus you with these disciplines and you're going to have an anchoring point to have your real happiness, your real security anchored to something that isn't so unstable. So I want to give you three checks, three things that you can check to see what you're anchored to. What is that something that you're serving? And my hope is that you will be able to own things without having them own you. That you'll be able to anchor yourself to something that can be your master without it mastering over you because you'll have more freedom. The first aspect as we're looking at this idea of blowing in the wind or searching for answers in the wind comes from a man named Solomon. He's writing in his journal in his search to find something to anchor himself to. And the first check, he says, is I had to check my checkbook. Money was something that if I thought I would lose it, brought incredible anxiety to me. He said, my whole life I saw my dad was a king. I thought if I could be a king like dad, if I could have his popularity, if I could have the kind of resources he had, I thought I wouldn't serve anybody. Everyone would serve me when I'm the king. He said, and then I became the king. And I realized, look at these words, even the king. I thought the king was free from serving anybody. No, even the king is served from the fields. Even I've got to make sure that the fields take, I've got to get food from the fields. The bigger my administration, the more people I have to provide for, the more payroll I need to make. So even I, who thought I'd be free being king, I too serve somebody. I even serve the grass. Can you believe that? I, the king, am dependent upon the, the, the corn and the grain. I thought this position of leadership would make me free, but it didn't. Instead, what I found is that even the king is served from the field. And I tried to anchor myself into position. In that position, I realized I still serve somebody. I tried to anchor myself into the power that came with being king. And even then, I was serving all the people who needed me to provide for them. So I made money the thing I anchored to. The, the headwinds in life, I said, well, what if accumulation is the thing I find my daddy in? And let me tell you, he was great at accumulating. It said that he made in his city silver more common than stones during his reign. One of the richest men in history. He says, well, the problem was, he who loves silver, if you attach yourself to, to silver and the accumulation of silver... I did it, and I was never satisfied with silver. Because no matter how much I had, there could always be more. I could always have another house, another place, another upgrade. Nor, not just silver, it was just abundance in general. If, if I tried to anchor myself to abundance, there always could be more. And I found his favorite phrase, it's all vanity. It was all meaningless. And what I realized is if I was going to take the headwinds of these great things like business and entrepreneurship and, and money and abundance, great things, but instead of having my emotional happiness tied to how much I had or didn't have, God had to teach me how to anchor myself to him. And if I could anchor myself to him, then when I checked my checkbook, something interesting would happen. I could begin to enjoy the headwinds of abundance. I could own things without them owning me. 
I can enjoy the benefits of business, the benefits of entrepreneurship, and I realize that I still serve somebody. But I need to serve something that didn't define me. That was his first checkbook. He had to check his checkbook to find out what was it he was dependent on because he always thought power and money and stability and abundance and silver would make him happy, but it didn't. About nine months ago, a guy walked into my office who got baptized last week, my friend Steve. And he said, Chet, i got to talk to you. I said, you don't know me real well. He said, but uh, you gave a message about nine months ago about the topic of not just owning things, but things owning you. I didn't even remember the message, honestly. He said, and I walked out of that service, and I said, you know, I don't need the money. I didn't need to sell stuff, but I realized my stuff was owning me. And I did something I'd never done before. I sold like 50 years' worth of accumulation of this, this uh, you know, treasured possession that I have. Because I realized between owning it, storing it, and insuring it, I was now dependent on it. It wasn't making me free. And I sold it all, and I'm so much freer because of that. And last Saturday, he was baptized here at our baptism service, one of our most freezing baptism services, I might add. Um, But he found that to be true. So it's not just Solomon's story. It's all of our story. It's good to have good things. But when you move from from having them to needing them. And that's what dependence is. It's the difference between something I own versus something that owns me. Now Solomon mentions three insights here that I think are worth referencing on our checkbook idea. Number one, he says, here's what I found. The more you have, the more you need. Isn't that truth? I mean, go back in your career 30 years ago. If you had told yourself you were making as much as you're making now, you'd probably say, oh my goodness. I would have so much money to be generous with. I would be so happy. I'd be so satisfied. I wouldn't know how to, what to even to do with it all. And then you got to where you are. And what happened? As the income went up, so did the need go up. Right? Your expenses just kept reaching up with what you make. And this is exactly what, what uh, Solomon found. He says, the more you have, the more you need. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. The bigger your company, the bigger the payroll. So what does it profit to have an owner except to see them with their own eyes? In fact, after our baptism service last week, I went out to uh, the boathouse with uh, Steve and his family. And so I was talking to a couple of family members, some which um, do remodels of uh, custom homes. I'm sorry, custom planes. They do remodels of planes. And both my kids are thinking about going into business. And I said, hey, what advice would you have for my kids? And these small business owners immediately answered. They said, don't have more than 10 employees and follow your passion. Well, what? Tell me about that. Oh my God, it's just, it's more to manage. It's more uh, HR. It's more hassle. Keep it small. Keep it small. Because the more you have, the more you need, the more you have to manage. And that's what Solomon goes on to say. He says, the more you have, the more you have to worry about. He says, you know, as king, what I really envy, you know what would help me sail better, to fly through life better? I look at the people who work for me, and I realize they can sleep at night. The sleep of a laboring man is sweet to be able to sleep at night and not worry about payroll and worry about all the people's retirement and all those jobs. It's a lot of pressure on being the leader. And whether the laboring man has a little or much, he gets to sleep at night. But the abundance of the rich and the powerful, man, I'm not even permitted to sleep because the more I have, the more I have to worry about. 
Third, he says, the more you have, the more you have to lose. Losing 10% of a small amount is bad, but losing 10% of a large amount is worse. That's where he's beginning to realize, if I tie myself to my savings, and my saving becomes my security, if that's what I anchor to, I'm going to be really anxious when the stock market's down. Oh my goodness, that's my security. That's my life. Versus if I'm tied to something else, anchored to something else, I'm still worried or concerned or disappointed when stocks are down or I need to make quarterly results. But my identity isn't tied to it. And that what allows me to fly through the different seasons of ups and downs because I'm not defined by these things. Here's how he says it. There's a severe evil which I have seen under the sun. Strong words. Riches kept for the owner to his hurt. Isn't that interesting? His whole life was about accumulating riches. But he said, I began to notice that some people accumulate enough riches that they harm themselves. How could that be? Because they think their money is their security. And the more they have, the more they're worried about losing it. But those riches perish through misfortune. When he begets a son, there's nothing in his hand. In other words, you work your whole life and you build, you build, you build. You got this whole company and you put all your sweat equity into it. You got this whole thing and then you die and you leave it to your son. Who sort of wastes it away and then gives it to your grandson. And you thought you were leaving a legacy and three generations later, the whole company's been trashed. And, and you said, I was living to help out. Instead, I ended up hurting the very people I was trying to provide for. Because now they're fighting over my money. And there's nothing more painful as a pastor than being at a funeral. And while we're mourning the death of a patriarch or a matriarch of a family, what's the subtext is that really you see the fighting going on. And the last thing this father or this mother would want is a division that's come from the things he wanted to be a blessing have now become something that's divisive because they've tied their identity, the family has, to money, not to something that transcends it. Three interesting insights about checking your checkbook. I remember talking to a friend, uh, I think about a month ago, he was a president of an organization, had worked his way up to this by making this incredible acquisition. So they had uh, built this company, and and he had negotiated this deal, and they got this great deal, and the company was just celebrating him. Oh, my gosh, you doubled the size of the company with this deal. Wow, we're so glad you're the president. This confirms that we got the right guy for the job. And then he said about six months later, the deal went sour. I mean, they had the company, but just some things that they had done due diligence on, some things in the economy changed. And what was his crown jewel became his scarlet A. And all of a sudden, he was the hero getting affirmation and encouragement for his decision. And now this was the very thing that was hanging over the neck of the company And he realized, though I wanted to make good decisions, I was tying my very identity to how people felt. And the very thing that blessed me one day became the albatross around my neck the the next. See, when you check your checkbook, there's a difference between acquisition, which is building stuff and designing stuff and being an entrepreneur. Nothing wrong with that. But there's a difference between acquisition and definition. Acquisition is I build stuff and I own stuff. Definition is I define or anchor myself to that thing. John D. Rockefeller found that. He uh, grew up with a religious experience, um, a faith-based experience. But as he got into business, he began to tie his identity or anchor himself not to who God was, but to how much he could acquire. And he was getting worn out, very successful, but absolutely worn out. 
to the point at which at age 55, he went to see the doctor. And the doctor sat down with him and said, you are in terrible health. Oh, my goodness, your heart, your ulcers, everything you've built, everything you've acquired, you've made the very definition of your success. And because of that, your worry and anxiety, the things you care about the most, family and health, are being destroyed because you've anchored yourself to your ability to acquire and define yourself. And the doctors told him he had like two years to live most at age 55. And he was shell-shocked by this. And knowing only two years to live, he totally changed his lifestyle. Though he had been a a percentage giver from an early age, because his mother had told him at an early age to give away 10% of his income, he decided to start a totally different mindset. Instead of acquiring things for himself, he set up foundations, he set up charities, he totally changed his whole business model, age 55 to 57, to give stuff away to prepare for his death. And you know what happened? He went back to the doctor. Age 57, they said, what happened? What do you mean, what happened? I'm preparing for my death. Your heart sounds great. Your ulcers are almost totally gone. And John D. Rockefeller ultimately lived to be 97 years old. And what he would say is when he learned to anchor himself to something bigger than his acquisitions and defining himself by his money, when he began to live a lavishly generous, other-centered lifestyle, he found purpose and meaning that he did not find through all the other incredible things he had done in his life. So the first thing Solomon says is, if you want to find this kind of freedom, if you want to anchor yourself, you've got to check your checkbook. The second thing you need to look at is you've got to check your clock. And the bottom line is that our money and our time really tells us where our values are. What are we dependent on? What are we serving in life? So check your clock. How do you spend your time? Where do you put your time? Are you enjoying your time? Did that thing that was going to make you so much so happy when you took that job or bought that house or got that lake house, is it still bringing you joy or is it just heartache, something else to manage? You see, if you anchor yourself again to finding that God is the giver of your gifts and talents, you're able to enjoy the headwinds of life, but you're anchored to something. You're anchored to something that God gives you, that allows you to not be defined by your time, how much you work or don't work, but to be find something greater. And that allows you to take the forces of time and use them to your advantage rather than being driven by time like a master. Here's how Solomon says it. And this also is a severe evil. Again, look how strong that word is. He goes, guys, I've tried it. I've worn myself out serving my work. Just exactly as he came, so you will go. What profit has he who's labored for the wind? This is an old Hebrew idiom, labored for the wind, that literally means slogging or striving. It would be the equivalent today of saying, I feel like I'm running on a treadmill. I'm wearing myself out with all my projects and all my builds and all my new endeavors. And though I love it, I'm serving it to the point I'm dependent on it and I'm worn out in all my days I've been eaten away like ulcers, like darkness coming into my life. And I've got much sorrow and sickness and anger. That's not what this thing was supposed to bring out in my life. I love to work. I don't think I'm a workaholic, but I love to work. I'm, I'm amazed at how often I can't turn it off, right? So with technology being what it is, you can work. Because you can work anywhere, we work everywhere, don't we? 
And I find in my brainstorming, coming to ideas or brainstorming where we're headed or where we're going or, or, or strategic decisions made for the next six months or nine months or, or years, I find that in that striving, I anchor myself to my next idea and I wear myself out. If I don't put one of those rudders of simplicity or focus or balance or Sabbath in my life. Back in January, I was in Miami at a conference and a woman named Daniel Strickland, who is a spokesperson for the Salvation Army. And she specifically is focused in Australia in rescuing women from the sex trade industry on behalf of the Salvation Army. And so we had a room about 20 people and she was just sharing her journey and her story. As I was there, she shared something, a funny story that ended up being very convicting to me and maybe will to you as well. She said in Australia, uh, in these um, massage parlors that go in, that are really just places where women are, are traded and used for prostitution, she got a call from this uh, older Baptist woman who was right down the street from a new massage parlor that went in. And she's like, what do you think we should do about this? Should we call? Should we protest? Should we sign a petition? And uh, Daniel's like, I don't know. Well, what would you do if it was just one of your new neighbor that moved in? She says, just a new neighbor, not a massage parlor? Yeah, what would you do? I guess I would bake him cupcakes. Well, why don't you do that? Okay. She says, well, if they're a neighbor, I should probably go over there myself. Daniel said, no, I'll go with you. So they traveled together, this little old lady, that little Baptist woman, and Danielle, the key spokesman for the anti-sex trade industry for the Salvation Army. They knock on the door of the massage parlor, and up walks the pimp. What do you want? We brought cupcakes. Cupcakes? Come on in! They bring them in, they sit down, and they're feeding cupcakes, and all the girls who work in the massage parlor come out, and they're all given cupcakes, and she gets, as a grandmother, a chance to care and love on each of these girls and know them by name. And they get done talking. She says, well, I'll be back next week. And for weeks, she comes back. And every week, she brings cupcakes and builds relationships and also finds out who's there by enslavement and who's there by choice. And through this cupcake model, she was able to then get the local police forces involved. And six months later, they're able to rescue dozens of girls from the sex trade industry because of a cupcake ministry. So much so that Salvation Army now has a mandatory cupcake strategy for rescuing girls from sex trade. It's amazing how God will use something to anchor you to a greater vision. As she was talking that day in Miami, and I was thinking about just striving and how to turn off and how to balance, she said, do you know why God put the Sabbath in place? Because enslaved people never rest. Slaves don't have a day off. So when God brought people out of Egypt, he said, I want you to take a day of rest to celebrate that you're free. Free people can rest. I went, oh, that's good. And then she said, are you living like a free person or an enslaved one? Can you rest from technology? Can you rest from phone calls, email? If you can't ever take a day of resting from brainstorming or building or brainstorming or creating or being effective, if you 
like me, as I'm wrestling with this issue, saying it, I'm like, oh my goodness, I'm a slave. Not to bad things. I'm a slave to good things. And my inability to rest shows that my clock is anchored not to a master that allows me to rest, but I am anchored to a master that drives me to go, go, go all the time. And when you check your checkbook and you check your clock, you know what you find? You find your master. And if you're serving a master that doesn't let you rest, you need a new master. And God is your master wants you to be free, to have the kind of freedom to forgive, the kind of freedom to rest, the kind of freedom to not always need to produce. You are not the result of what you do. A master who loves you for who you are. And this is a good thing to check, to ask yourself, what am I anchored to? In Solomon's words, when you think about your days, what do your days really matter? Essentially, Frederick Nietzsche, you know, who wrote the, the famous uh, madman um, poem, if you want to call it that, or certainly a little dissertation, um, he says, God is dead. We've unanchored the earth from the sun. We were not going to know which way is upward or downward or leftward or rightward. But later in his life, he began to reflect about his time. If what I say about life is true, there is no God, and there is no eternity, and there is no future, and there is no hope, and I'm going to die, and I'm just going to go back into the big black void of space. So what purpose is life really at all? What are my days matter? If I'm anchored to a meaningless universe, I came from meaninglessness, I'm going to end at meaninglessness, what does my life matter? As he reflected on that, he was so struck by it, that you know, many think that caused him to go insane in the later years of his life, just reflecting on the reality of anchoring himself to this worldview, to the point at which is his Christian mother, who cared for him during his final years, to say, no, no, there is a higher purpose. There is a meaning to life. And, and you've, you've preached your whole life that God is dead and there's no meaning. And now you're feeling the, 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 the emotions of, if that's true, it's pretty painful. And she began to coax him and, and, and ask him to anchor into something else. Oscar Wilde's another one. He spent his whole life anchoring himself in his time to pleasure. You know, how can I pleasure myself in the most possible ways and the most, you know, different ways and, you know, you know, live for pleasure? But when he died, if you go to his monument, you'll see a man who is devoted to pleasure has written on his tombstone that people come up and kiss. There's lipstick marks all over his tombstone, which uh, is sort of a case study in, uh, you know, maybe, you know, germs. Um, <laughs> But look at what's on. The guy who devoted his life to pleasure, anchoring himself to pleasure, spending his time on pleasure. And look what they wrote this poem here. Alien tears will fill for him pity's long broken urn. For his mourners will be outcast men, and outcasts always mourn. What a dark, depressing, sad epitaph for a man who said live for pleasure. In fact, that's not his only tomb. They put that there because the, the, the community wanted to see this work of art. But his actual tomb has a quote from the book of Job from the Bible of all things on it. In Job chapter 29, verse 22, on Oscar Wilde's tombstone, it says, After my words, and I said, go live for pleasure, that will we find meaning. They did not speak again. In my speech, all the things I committed myself and anchored myself settled on them like dew. And like do, it comes and it goes. Pleasure is a good thing, but if you live for pleasure, if you anchor yourself to pleasure, you end up finding addiction, you end up putting too much pressure on your marriage, and you end up the very thing you wanted to be a satisfying part of your marriage becomes something that becomes a resentment point in marriage. 
because you took a good thing and made it into an ultimate thing. Check your checkbook. Check your clock. And lastly, check your countenance. The countenance of your faith. All these things you've devoted yourself to. All things you said, this would make me happy. Whether it was the pleasure, whether it was the philosophy of uh, Frederick Nietzsche. What is really coming out of you if this really works? If you think about what you've anchored yourself to, if you think about the headwinds in your life and all the time and energy you've placed into something, is it really bringing you the joy and the peace you said it would? You said, hey, we're doing this for the family. We're doing this for the kids. We're doing this for our career. This will be a great time in our marriage. And then the way you're going about it, are you really having a great time in your marriage? Are you really finding the rest and the benefit you want? Or is there an inner striving that's disintegrating the very things you love? And this is where Solomon says, I found my secret. It's good and fitting for one to eat and drink, to enjoy the good of his labor which he toils under the sun. How do you do it? You've got to anchor yourself to something bigger than the stuff in life. Notice how often he's going to use the word gift. When you're toiling under the sun, and there's some toiling, all the days of your life, remember, these are days that God's given you. That's what you anchor to. You're not just here, but it's a gift. You have a higher purpose that God gives you. For it is His heritage, not your heritage you're living for, but His heritage. That's the anchoring point. As for every man to whom God has given riches, these aren't your money, this is God's money, God's talents, God's opportunities. And so you become his money manager. And instead of living for yourself, you're living for a higher purpose. Not only that, God doesn't just give you your riches and wealth. He gives you the power to eat of it. The power to produce it. The power to receive from his heritage. See, again, he's anchoring to something bigger than himself. And when you anchor to something bigger than yourself, the reason your countenance is so high is because, look what he says, you can rejoice rather than strive in his labor. This is, and there's the phrase again, a gift from God. See how he's anchoring himself? This is the gift of God. He will not dwell unduly on the day of his life. Oh my goodness, I've got to get my life. This is all the life is. It's a short little window. No, no, you have an eternity if what God says is true. And if what God says is true, then this life is just a short little time period by which we can be faithful to him with what he's entrusted to us. But we've got all the time in the universe to do all the things that we've thought about. So we don't have to pack it all in now. Look at that last phrase. I love that last phrase. As a guy who loves to be busy, as a guy who loves to, to fill my schedule, he says, because God keeps him busy with the joy of his heart. Oh, I like that. What if we were busy, not striving for other people's approval, not striving to get more done? What if we were busy still with the joy of our hearts? Saying, if God owns me, then I want to accomplish his purpose. If God owns me, then what happens in my circumstances, I want to be a good manager, I want to be responsible, but ultimately he's the one that's in charge. Oh, that takes a load off. If he owns me, there's freedom here. There's a gift. Life is a gift. Life is filled with joy. I can be disappointed when things don't go well, but I'm not devastated because the thing that's been given to me is not taken away. And that's the grace of God. Anchoring yourself to something greater than the things in life. See, anything we serve is something we're dependent on, and we serve anything that we're dependent on. So I want to encourage you as we finish up this series today to find out who and what you're serving. Trace your emotions. Trace your fears. 
Check your checkbook. Check your clock. Check your accountants and ask yourself, who am I really serving these days? And if you're not happy with how you're sailing the winds of life, with who you're serving or what you're serving, I would encourage you to switch masters. And I want you to find a master that will free you up to serve yourself and other people in the best way possible. Now, for me, that's been the person of Jesus Christ. Because even in religion, you can just work hard to be a good person. You get worn out with all the good works. In grace, God says, I want to give you a right standing with me. I want to forgive you of everything you've done, past, present, future. You're accepted. No more striving. You can now perform from a place of approval rather than trying to strive to get my approval. So for me, that's the master I have found that has, has brought a balance and a freedom in my life. I can be generous with my money. I can save without it being my security. I can give without feeling self-righteous and I'm giving more or less than other people. There's not condemnation or shame. That's what grace does. I can give of my life. I don't serve people so I can put them on my resume to maybe God will accept me in heaven. No, no, no. I'm already accepted into heaven. I can serve people because I really want to serve people. Even crabby people. Even disgruntled people. Because I'm not doing it to get a feeling out of it, though I like when I get the feeling out of it. I'm serving people because he served me so well. Think about your life. Your time. Your money. You're like, oh, this is what this sermon is about. There's a big setup for you to talk about giving to the church. You notice we don't even do an offering in our church, right? We don't do an offering in our church. It's not because we don't have needs. And we're coming to the end of our fiscal year. We certainly have huge financial needs. But the reason we don't do an offering in our service is because we don't want you to think we're trying to get anything from you. Because we're not. We want something for you. Freedom. And as John D. Rockefeller found, the idea of giving percentage of your income away, and certainly one of those priorities of the church, sure, the orphan, the widow, creating entrepreneurship in, in things that rescue women from sex trade and, and helping little girls in Belize that go into prostitution because they know their options. These are things we're committed to locally, here, near, and far. But we don't want something from you. We want something for you. We want the freedom that comes when you become a giver of your time, giver of your, uh, of your money. God wants you to sail. Do you remember Mary Poppins? They did a remake Disney did called Saving Mr. Banks. And it had a great, great story of how Disney acquired the rights to Mary Poppins. And in that story, something incredible happened. Because the writer of the original story, it was based on her father, who was a, 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 a drunkard, he was a, a banker, and he was not necessarily a great dad. And, and she was afraid that if Disney took the movie, that her dad would be put in a bad light, Mr. Banks. And she said, I want people to know that my dad was a good man who worked for me and loved me and cared for me despite his faults. And she wrestled with Disney on every aspect of the movie. And in the movie, they show the time they said, we got away that at the very end. We want to show that your father, despite his mistakes, despite what he did wrong, the power of grace is that he was committed to you. And that's where they sang a song for her. Let's go fly a kite. Up to the highest height and send it soaring. And in the movie, that became the moment she said, I'll sell my movie to you because I want this to be out of a relationship between a father and a child. 
that what my dad did his whole life is he wanted to teach me how to fail, how to enjoy. And God doesn't want to put restrictions in your life with simplicity and Sabbath and giving. He wants to put focus in your life so you can enjoy the headwinds of life without being controlled by the headwinds of life. That God would say to you as your heavenly father, I love you. I want the best for you. I want to be the kind of master that frees you. Let's go. Fly a kite. Let's pray. Father, we admit that, man, we serve so much stuff that's got us on a treadmill. And there's been a lot of just searching after the wind. But, Father, I ask today would be a moment that we would reach out to our Heavenly Father and say, God, I'm ready. I'm ready for freedom. I'm ready to anchor to something new. And maybe you want to say it to God this morning. God, let's go fly a kite. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for being here today. You can have your own set of wings. With your feet on the ground, you're a bird in flight. With your feet holding tight to the string of your kite. Oh.